Amen. Well, if you have your Bibles with you this morning, I hope you do. I want to encourage you to open them to 2 Samuel chapter 5. 2 Samuel uh, chapter 5. We dipped into chapter 5 a little bit last week. We're going to get through the middle section this morning. As you're finding your place there in God's Word, I want to welcome those who are joining us via our live stream. We have many who week in and week out join us in that way from uh, all over the world, all over the United States. I'm amazed by how many people watch us via our live stream, and we want you to know we're, we're grateful for each and every one of you. Uh, also want to welcome Reach Church Paola. Uh, they launched out last week, so last week was their first official Sunday, and they had over 100 people in worship for their first uh, opportunity to worship. So Reach Paola, we're excited for you. We're excited about what God's doing there. We're praying for you and know that you're having another great Sunday there. Also, Reach Church DeSoto, uh, we got this passage and uh, Ryan asked me, he said, Pastor, you mind if I preach this passage? It was City of David. I said, you go for it, brother. So he's, they're getting live preaching out there this morning with Pastor Ryan out of DeSoto. I know it's going to go well. Um, and I'm grateful for them, and you keep praying for DeSoto. They're growing and growing. It's fun to see what God's doing out there. Well, we pick up here in 2 Samuel 5. If you're new to Lenexa Baptist Church, you need to know that you come to church here, got to bring your Bible, all right? You need a Bible. Um, you, you can't, you, you're not going to get the best out of this. You don't bring a Bible, and some of you got your phones and that kind of stuff out. But that's all right, but we'll pray for you, okay? Get... <laughs> Get you a real Bible, all right? You know, I don't want to look down on y'all, but get you a Bible, all right? You need something. Praise the Lord, all right? Um, so this is what we do. Um, we just study through the Word of God because you, you don't want any wisdom from me. I ain't got that much, all right? About thimble full of knowledge, about all I got. We just go to God's Word week in and week out. We let God speak. Um, sacred moment for us. We've been working our way through 1st and 2nd Samuel. It's all one book, two parts. Uh, it's all the book of Samuel, chapter breaks, and all those other breaks were added much later. And we come to a very significant moment. Uh, David, this is kind of the culmination of what David has been uh, anticipating. Uh, David, you'll remember, he's uh, anointed king by Samuel, and uh, uh, Samuel goes to Jesse's house. God directs him down there, and all the other brothers pass in front of Samuel, and, and uh, God overlooks them. And Samuel says, you got any more? Well, I got one. He's out with the sheep. Bring him in. And that just so happens to be God's man. God anoints him as king right there. And David just kind of goes back to doing what he does, being a shepherd, being a faithful son, a faithful brother. And then he has that, that really special moment. He kind of comes into this moment uh, with Goliath. And uh, he steps into that moment, achieves this great victory for God. And I can only imagine in his heart he's thinking, this is it. I finally kind of come into it and, and it's all going to start going well. And, and Saul's going to pull me up by, him, by his side. And, and then it doesn't go that way, does it? it? It gets tough. In fact, the further he goes, the more difficult it becomes. He lives for the next 15 years of his life. He'll be pretty much an outlaw. Um, he's running uh, from King Saul, who's incredibly jealous of him. In fact, he goes so far as he has to leave Israel. He goes into Philistia. And all this time, what has God been doing? God has made him a promise. You, you wonder why. Why didn't God just part the waters and make him king? Which would have been no problem for God. It's no issue. God has no problem making David king. God could have removed every obstacle just like that and exalted him king one moment. So why does God wait? 
God waits because the problem is not God's ability to make him king. The problem is getting David to trust him. And so God goes to work in David's heart to, to, to refine his faith, to test his faith. You know, that's what God does with us. Does God make us some great and wonderful promises? Things he's gonna bring about in our life? More often than not, those promises are a long time coming. And God goes to work to change us, to mold us, and to deepen our faith and, and trust in him. And so God is growing David. And now he's kind of coming to this moment that Saul and, and Jonathan have died in battle, and, and now Ishbosheth has, has taken leadership in the north. He's just a puppet king set up by Abner and, and Abner's power play to take control over all Israel in opposition to the Lord's anointed. But now Ishbosheth has passed away. He's died. These men, two men, Benan Rechab, who are going to use this as a moment to exalt themselves in front of David. And, they kill Ishbosheth. It doesn't work out well for them. Abner has died, the commander of the northern tribes in Israel at the hands of Joab. And all the obstacles, even uh, Mephibosheth, who's the next in line, he, God stops to tell us he's in no position to lead. It's all there to let us see that all the obstacles have been removed. And now David has cleared path to, to becoming the king of Israel. And the nation, this nation that has given allegiance to Ishbosheth, in many ways, Ishbosheth, the enemy of the true king, God's anointed David, they have given allegiance to him. And now all the things that they've been trusting in, they've been looking to security uh, from Ishbosheth. They, they've been looking for security in Abner, the commander of the military. All those things have been, been pulled out from underneath them. And they are confronted with the reality that they know in their heart that David is the king. David is the rightful king. But how do we approach him? Because we've offended him. We were his enemies. We, we, we gave allegiance to a false king. And so they're going to come to him. And we talked about this a little last week. In a, in a spirit of humility, recognizing their error. And coming with ho one hope. One hope. That this king would be unlike all the other kings of the world, he would be a king who's great in mercy. And that's what they find. With that in mind, let's pray together, then we'll work our way through this text. Father, we thank you for your word. Lord, we, we come to your truth and your word this morning with humble hearts. And pray this morning we come with teachable hearts. Lord, save us from what we think we already know. Help us to, to lay aside any presuppositions that we have about this passage and help us to come with humility and say, speak, Lord. Illumine our minds to the clear truths of this passage and change us. And, and God, if there's anybody here that doesn't know you, as great as David is, I pray that they would see past his shadow to the one and only true great king, which is Jesus Christ the king of all kings, the good shepherd who lays his life down for the people. It's in Christ's name that we pray, amen. Well, look with me. We're gonna read it again, those first few verses. In verse one, it says, then all the tribes of Israel came to David at Hebron and said, behold, we're your bone and your flesh. Um, that is an indication you're one of us. You, you care for us. It, 
to me, as I was around, all these things, we're going to see a powerful picture of how you and I come to Jesus Christ. When, when we were his enemies, that's what, what Paul says in Ephesians 2, that you were dead in your transgressions and sins in which you formerly walked according to the course of this world, according to the prince of the power of the air. Who is that? That's Satan. Do you know what Paul is saying? All of us prior to faith in Jesus Christ, we were not just spiritually neutral, we were following Satan. Now, very few people prior to faith in Christ say, you know what, I'm a Satan follower. But the fact of the matter is, listen to me, there is no spiritual Switzerland, all right? There's no neutrality spiritually. You're either going in one of two directions. You're either following Christ on a path that leads to life, or you're following the world on a course that leads to death. And if you're following the world, guess who's leading the world on a path to destruction? It is Satan. And all of us prior to faith in Christ, that's the direction we were going. We had given allegiance to God's enemies. We were objects of wrath, children of disobedience. But in the moment of salvation, when that occurred, God peeled back the blinders. He, he pulled out from underneath us all the things that we had leaned on for hope and salvation. And we finally saw the depth of our sin. And we saw the truth that we knew in our hearts that Jesus is king. And we humbled ourselves before him with one hope. And what was that hope? The hope was that this king, Jesus Christ, would be merciful. Because we got no leg to stand on. We got no argument to make. We got nothing to bring. We have offended the Lord's anointed. And we're just hoping that he'll be merciful. Isn't it good what Peter says? Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ who according to his great mercy. Isn't it good? The one thing that we need the most just so happens to be the thing that God is most abundant in. Praise God for a merciful God. And David's a merciful king. They, they come to him. They say, you care for us. Verse 2, previously when Saul was king over us, you were one, the one who, who led Israel out and in. David, we've seen God's hand on your life. We've been suppressing this truth in our hearts, but now we can suppress it no longer. God's hand is obviously on you. And, and in fact, it was God's command. It says in verse 2, and the Lord said to you, you will shepherd my people Israel, and you'll be a ruler over Israel. This is interesting because it's the first real reference to Israel's king being a shepherd king. We'll get um, the 23rd Psalm. The Lord is my shepherd. Israel's king was to shepherd the people. In fact, it doesn't even say king here. They can't bring themselves to say king. They say, it's my translation. They say ruler. Some of your translations may say prince. The king of Israel was to be different than all the other kings in that he wasn't there for his own self-exaltation and his own glory. He was there to glorify God and serve people. He was there to be a shepherd, which, by the way, wasn't a noble profession. It was a lowly profession. They say, David, we recognize that God called you to be our shepherd, the one who loves us, the one who cares for us. And so in verse three, the, all the elders of Israel came to the king at Hebron, and King David made a covenant with them before the Lord at Hebron. And then they anointed David king over Israel. They come in humility. They come recognizing their sinfulness. They come only with a desire for mercy and guess what David says? Come on in. Come close. I bet they were incredibly fearful. David could have wiped them all out. But David says, it's okay. You know what I think David may have said? Come close. What, what, what you meant for evil, God meant for good. Just like Joseph with his brothers. All these things. Because David had been through the ringer, hadn't he? He had every right to hold a grudge, to be bitter towards these people that had caused him so much pain. 
And he says, listen, it's okay, come close. There's forgiveness, there's grace here, there's mercy. And now we're family. We're in a covenantal relationship. It's a beautiful picture of God's love demonstrated towards guilty sinners. They come to David, they anoint him. This is, by the way, the third anointing of David as king, anointed by Samuel, anointed by the elders at Judah, and now seven years later, anointed again, finally, as king over all of Israel. Then we get a summary of David's reign. It says in verse four, David was 30 years old. Anyone else we know who was a shepherd king about 30 years old started his ministry? David was 30 years old when he became king and he reigned 40 years. At Hebron, he reigned over Judah seven years and six months. And in Jerusalem, he reigned 33 years over all Israel and Judah. So David is now made king. All the tribes, the 11 tribes of the north, now combined with Judah, all 12 tribes recognizing him as king. He's, he spent half his life on the run with no real place to lay his head. The foxes have holes, the birds of the air has nests, but the son of man has no place to lay his head. That was David on the run for 15 years. Now, finally, there's peace in the nation. He's anointed king. What's he gonna do? All this work, all this effort, all this restlessness, all this trial, now peace and tranquility as he is anointed king. I don't know I, I, about you, but I think I would have said to the nation, hey, y'all, y'all just figure it out for a few weeks. I'm going to the beach, all right? I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to have me um, a little rest, um, and uh, I'm just going to rest on my laurels here and enjoy what God has given. But that's not what David does. It's a powerful picture here as David is brought into a position of leadership. Finally, what he's been waiting on, it will not be a time for David to rest on his laurels. It will be a time for David to fulfill the command and the commission that God has given the nation. I love this. David looks at the nation and says, we're not gonna rest on our laurels. We're not gonna sit back and relax. Now's the time to get to work. And what are they gonna do? When you're anointed king, you're finally put in this position, what do you do? You know what you do? You do what God already commanded you to do. And what did God command of this nation? When they were sent into the land with Joshua, you run out the Canaanites. This is your land. This is the land that I'm giving to you. This is the land I promised to you. You run out the Canaanites. You occupy this land. They didn't complete that mission, did they? And David, you know what he says? There's a new sheriff in town. And we about, we about to finish what we were supposed to finish a long time ago. So look at what he does. Verse six, now the king and his men went to Jerusalem against the Jebusites, the inhabitants of the land. And they said to David, you shall not come in here, but the blind and lame will turn you away, thinking David cannot enter here. Nevertheless, David captured the stronghold of Zion, that is the city of David. David said on that day, whoever would strike the Jebusites, let him reach the lame and the blind who are hated by David's soul through the water tunnel. Therefore, they say, the blind or the lame shall not come into the house. So David makes a very strategic decision to establish a capital city of Israel. And he sets his heart to make Jerusalem the capital city of Israel. It's strategic because it was a centralized location. Uh, David, I think, very, very much knew, I'm gonna move the tabernacle to Jerusalem. It'll be a place of worship. I wanna be a central location. All the na- nation can come and worship. I-, I think he knew I can't just go back to Judah. That would have been my hometown. That would have been showing favoritism. I want some place that's more neutral to the nation. 
And so he sets his heart on Jerusalem. But I think it is, it's, it's a bigger, it's something bigger than just a strategic decision. In fact, it's, a, it's an eternally significant decision directed by God. Let me explain that. In scripture, the, the first reference that we have to Jerusalem comes from, when we study Genesis, it comes from Genesis 14. Abraham, uh, Abraham uh, hears uh, his, his nephew Lot is in Sodom. He settles down in the city, gets himself into all kinds of trouble, and, uh, and he's in Sodom, and Sodom gets overtaken by Catalomar and these other people, and they, they lead away, they take all this stuff out of Sodom, and they take uh, Abraham's nephew Lot, and they, they lead him away. And Abraham's not so much concerned about the city of Sodom, but he is concerned about one individual. He's concerned about his nephew Lot. So it's become personal at this point. I gotta do something about this. I thought, um, you know, Coach Prime, it, now they went and made it personal, all right? So that's what, y'all not follow Coach Prime? All right, I'm so sorry. Maybe the venue service, they're laughing right now. I know, those, the young folks, they get that. Anyway, um, so, man, now I'm sidetracked, all right? You bring Coach Prime in, you get all in trouble. So he finds out Lot has been taken. And he's got to go get him. i got to go do something about this. So he maneuvers his guys. Now, Catalomar's got this big army. They just won a big victory. And uh, Abraham's got a little small group of guys. But they go against Catalomar, and they whip him. They beat him. And he takes back Lot, and he gets all the plunder. Great victory on Abraham's part that God is with him. And he's headed back, and, and he's met by the king of Sodom, and he's going to uh, talk peace with him. But then he's met by another guy. Do you know who the other guy is? Melchizedek. Melchizedek, Melchizedek, Melek, King, Zedek, Righteousness, the King of Righteousness. But it says more specifically, Melchizedek, King of Salem. And commentators most agree that this is a reference to Jerusalem. Now, what is significant about Melchizedek? If you want the full story on this, you gotta go read Hebrews chapter seven. The author of Hebrews brings this in. I'm not gonna do all the work for you, all right? You gotta do some of the work yourself, so go read it this afternoon. But Melchizedek is, is unique in that he is a priest and a king. Now, this is unique because in the nation of Israel, you don't combine those two rules or two roles. Kings can't be priests. In fact, there are some kings who try to be priests and it never works out well for them. You can't combine those two roles. But here is a man who is a king and a priest. He's a worshiper, scripture tells us, of the most high God, meaning not just a God of, of many gods. No, he is a worshiper of the one true God of all creation. So this is a man who's outside of Israel, who's a worshiper of the one true God. He's a priest and a king. He offers to Abraham bread and wine. He blesses Abraham in scripture. The greater always blesses the lesser, meaning he's demonstrated. Listen, the nation of Israel, they thought Abraham, he's the greatest of all the patriarchs. But there was somebody greater than him. And he blesses Abraham. And, and Abraham, you remember what Abraham does? Abraham gives him to a, a tenth. Now that's not a tip. He's giving a tenth in a recognition that you are greater than me, that you are divine. It's a powerful picture. You have a, a priest king who's greater than Abraham that blesses Abraham. This divine Figure. In fact, the author of Hebrews tells us that his, his um, priesthood is eternal. Not that he is eternal, but it says that he has no father or no mother, no genealogy, meaning he's of an eternal priesthood. 
In fact, the author of Hebrews, the argument against Jesus, the author of Hebrews is saying Jesus is the great high priest. They're saying, how can he be a priest? He's not from the tribe of Levi. The author, the author of Hebrews says, you're right, he's not from Levi. He's from a higher order of priests, an eternal order of priests. He's from the order of Melchizedek. So Jerusalem's this place of priest kings who are greater than the patriarchs. And then there's another place in, in 1 Samuel. Do you remember? There's another place in 1 Samuel that Jerusalem is mentioned. It's mentioned when David kills Goliath. David kills Goliath. He takes his head off. And where does he take the head? He takes it to Jerusalem. He takes the head to Jerusalem. Why did he take it to Jerusalem? Jerusalem's occupied by the Jebusites. Let me tell you what I think. This is my own personal opinion. So if it's not inspired by God, let it fall by the way. But let me tell you what I think. David grew up in Bethlehem. Bethlehem is really close to Jerusalem. And you can't tell me that in all the time of his shepherding out in the fields, he didn't look off in a distance and see Jerusalem up on a hill. And here is Jerusalem at the, at the center of this nation, and it's occupied by Canaanites. You know what it was? It was a disgrace to the nation. It was an affront to God. This land that I've given to you, right in the heart of it, there's this one city that the Jebusites control, and I guarantee you they were constantly taunting the nation of Israel. You're supposed to have all this land, but you don't have this city, and you can't take us, and we got it. And you know what I think it made David? I think it made him really mad. Those people got what God gave to us, and we don't have it because we didn't trust God. And so after killing Goliath, I think he took the head of Goliath to Jerusalem to let them know, you're next. Goliath was the man who was unbeatable. Can't beat the guy. He taunted David. You come at me like a dog with sticks, a little David. And how did that work out for him? Not well. Now here's the city of Jerusalem with the Jebusites saying, David, you can't come in here. The lame and the blind can protect the city. It's so impenetrable. You, you, you can't take us. Well, when David kills Goliath, I think he went to Jerusalem, dropped off the head and said, boys, take notice. One day I'm coming back. And just like this guy who couldn't be beaten, you who think you can't be beaten will take you out too. And we'll take back what God has given to us. So here's Jerusalem. He, I think David knew in his heart one day if I'm king, I'm gonna take that as my capital. That'll be the capital city of God's people. Now the problem is it was impenetrable. Uh, the city of Jerusalem, it was almost impossible to attack. It's surrounded by three valleys. You've got the uh, Hinnom Valley, you've got the Kidron Valley, and you've got the Tropian Valley. Surrounded by three valleys, you've got these walls up on a hill. You can't do anything with it. It's absolutely impossible to get in this place. They have fended off. The Jebusites have fended off. They're completely surrounded by Israel. You think, how in the world has Israel not taken this place? It was impenetrable. You can't get to this place. It's, it's totally secure. But David knows <laughs> the impossible is, is exactly where God loves to operate. David says, we're going to take it. They taunt him. Um, David puts it a challenge. In, in, if you look in Chronicles, Chronicles will give you the more full story, but David puts out a challenge to the person who would, who would get inside there and attack them and begin and, and attack the blind and lame. When he's talking about the, when David says, he, my soul hates the blind, he's talking about the Jebusites. They refer to themselves as the blind and the lame. Well, I'll tell you what I'll do with your blind and the lame. I'll beat them. And so he sets out a reward for anybody who can get in there and attack the blind and the lame. And guess who signs up for the job? A guy who's not in good favor with David because he killed Abner. This guy by the name of Joab, and he's looking for a way to gain favor back with David, and so he signs up for the job, and he's a pretty good warrior to boot. 
And so he goes against now. Now here's the deal with Jerusalem. There's this spring. One of the things that made it so impenetrable is that the Jebusites had set it up so there's this spring, the Gihon Spring, outside the walls of Jerusalem. And it just, it's a constant steady flow of water. And what they did is they built the fortress around that spring and then they dug a tunnel from the spring inside the walls of the city. And what it allowed them to do is have a constant source of water without having to go outside the walls. And you don't want to go outside the walls if you're a Jebusite because you might get killed because you're surrounded by your enemies. So they had to have a way to basically live without going outside the city. And so they had dug this, this amazing tunnel. And David says here, if you're going to attack them, you got to go through the water shaft. Now, for a long time in Christian history, we didn't even know what that meant. What is a water shaft? In fact, it's a hard word. It's called tison in, in Hebrew. Um, it can be translated waterfall. For a long time, we thought, what in the world is that? Until 1867, a guy by the name of Charles Warren was doing excavation around the city of Jerusalem. And guess what he found? He found this Gihon Spring, and underneath the spring, he found a tunnel that went from the Gihon Spring into the city of Jerusalem. And he said, that's it. And finally, don't you love how archaeology always, always backs up the word of God? It's so good. The more we stay, the more we dig, the more we find this stuff's actually true. In fact, you ought to see the excavation they're doing in Shiloh right now. It's unbelievable. They think they found the place where the, 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 the ark was held in the Holy of Holies. All of it's backing up what we see in Scripture. But, but they found that tunnel. So what happens here, we know now, is that somehow Joab gets into the fortress on the Gihon Trumbull, and, and he, he goes into that Gihon Spring, and he gets in that tunnel, and the itsy-bitsy spider crawled up the water spout. He, he just gets in there. He gets behind enemy lines, and he gets in that water tunnel where they would go and draw water, and he finds his way up into the city and opens the city gates, and the army of Israel is able to advance in and take the city in one fell swoop. It's a powerful picture of the work of God, the redemption of his people. In fact, Jonathan Edwards said of this, when he, comment, he offers some commentary on this passage, he said there's no more clear picture in all the Old Testament that, that demonstrates this, the work of salvation that Christ accomplished for us. Because, because this was an impenetrable city, and it was held captive by the enemy, and nobody could take it, and it was protecting what God had promised. And yet one man was able to penetrate the city, go behind enemy lines, and defeat them from the inside out. Does that remind you of anyone? Jesus said, how can a man, um, how can a man uh, bind, uh, enter into the strong man's house and carry off his possessions unless he first binds him? See, the picture there is Jesus, when he came to redeem us, you and I, you and I were held captive by Satan. When Jesus says, how can anyone carry off the strong man's possessions? Who's the strong man? It's Satan. And Satan is strong. And who are his possessions? It's you and I prior to faith in Christ. And he's guarding his possessions. And what Jesus is saying is that when he came to save us, he came on a rescue mission. It was one man under the cover of darkness entering into enemy territory to defeat them from the inside. And he goes to the cross and he takes Satan's own instrument of death and he uses it against him to defeat the enemy and set the captives free to reclaim that which God had given to Jesus. What a powerful picture. And David, uh, he retakes the city, one fell swoop. Now, listen, this is, is so much bigger than just this event right here. This, this taking of the city and establishing it as the capital, it's of eternal significance because Jerusalem will become the eternal capital city of God's people. 
Jerusalem will become the eternal capital, the eternal capital city of God's people. Because right here, you're gonna establish it as the, the capital. In fact, this is the place where Abraham offered Isaac. Mount Moriah will become Calvary, which is in the Temple Mount, which is in Jerusalem. It'll also be the place where Christ, when he comes, he will die in Jerusalem, outside the city gate, and he will die there for the sins of man, very near Moriah, where Abraham offered Isaac. And then later on, you remember, we, we move on, the temple will be destroyed by the Romans. And then when we enter into the tribulation period, there'll be an alliance between Antichrist and the nation of Israel, and there'll be a rebuilding of the temple. And then at the end of the tribulation, when Christ returns with his bride, the church, guess where Christ returns? Jerusalem. He returns, he sets down feet at the Mount of Olives, and he, he enters just as the glory of God left the eastern gate. He enters into Jerusalem through the eastern gate. In fact, you know what's interesting about that? You know, you know what the Muslims did? They know the prophecies of God. You know what the Muslims did? They bricked up the eastern gate. They did more than that. They actually put a cemetery out in front of the bricked up gate, the eastern gate, because they know the Jewish people, the dead are unclean. You don't want to go near the unclean. And don't you think Jesus is in heaven saying, boy, those bricks in that cemetery are really going to stop me. It's going to be a hard deal. Grave couldn't hold me, but those brick jobs, that's going to be tough to get through. Listen, no, he's going to return Mount Olives. He's going to enter through the eastern gate. And guess what we'll enter into? It's called the millennial kingdom, a thousand-year reign of Christ here on this earth. And there will be the reestablishment of the city of Jerusalem. Paradise lost will be paradise regained. And there will be the temple, and there will be the offering of sacrifices. Why, why will there be the offering of sacrifices? Why do we take the Lord's Supper in memorial of what Christ did for us? And there will be the offering. And guess who will be the priests? You and I. The redeemed of Christ. And then you'll remember at the end of the tribute or the end of the millennial kingdom, there'll be a final rebellion, and God's gonna take the whole thing down. Peter says the elements will melt with intense heat. This whole world, all of it's all coming down. And then what's gonna happen? Revelation 21 is what's gonna happen. And I saw a new heavens and a new earth. For the first heaven, the first earth had passed away, and there's no longer any sea. And I saw what? I saw the holy city, New Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven as a bride adorned for her husband. Isn't that good? Isn't God's word good? That, that you, listen, my hometown, Broken Oklahoma, my eternal hometown, Jerusalem, the new Jerusalem, now this earthly Jerusalem, it's just, a, it's just a cardboard illustration of the new Jerusalem that's coming in the new heavens and the new earth. In fact, what does Paul say? Our citizenship is in heaven you know what he's referring to? The new Jerusalem. You know what Abraham said? He never settled down. Why? Because he's looking for a city whose builder and maker is God. Guess what city he was looking for? The new Jerusalem. It's our heavenly, eternally home. And, and, and you know, now you look at it, it's impenetrable because these walls and these valleys. Do you know in Revelation 21, after it talks about the new heavens and the earth and God dwelling with his people, do you know what it spends so much time describing? The walls. The walls. You, well, why the walls? There's no more evil. What have we got to protect us from? God's going to tell us all about the walls so he knows. Listen, this is, this, is, this is so good. It's to demonstrate for us in a physical way 
that you and I, through faith in Jesus Christ, our eternal security is as secure as it can possibly be. The walls are 20 yards thick, they're solid gold, and they're 1,500 miles high. We are secure through faith in Jesus Christ. Isn't God good? Man, this is amazing. It all starts right here. This is why David, in my mind, there's no, more, no two more significant people in all God's word, David and Jesus Christ. So David establishes Jerusalem. This is gonna have eternal significance right here. And uh, then what does he do next? It says in uh, verse uh, nine, so David lived in the stronghold, called it the city of David, and David built all around him from the millow inward. What's the millow? He, he built around from the millow inward. The millow is the external or, or kind of the outward parts of the city. So if you picture this, you got the walls right here, and then the city would come up on a hill. You got the temple mount up here. And then the outskirts, it kind of goes down like this, and you got walls. And these outward parts, as they go down towards the wall, they were uninhabitable. What David does, it's so unique, because most kings, they conquer a city, the first thing they've done is establish a home for themselves right in the center. So they would start in the center, and they'd move outward. But David's not like any other king. He starts from the outward and works his way in. He, what he did is he built up the millow. He built it up and leveled it out so that people could live, more people could live on the outskirts. And he, he builds up the suburbs in our terminology. He builds it up so that more people could live. As he becomes king and he conquers the city, he's still not thinking of himself, he's thinking of other people. Powerful picture, and then what does it go on to say? Um, verse 10, David became greater and greater for the Lord of hosts was with him. So David just becomes greater and greater. This is powerful. David, his life to this point is, is, is a life of faithfulness to God and service to, to people, to others. This is a man who thinks very little of himself and focuses most of his life just on worshiping God and serving other people. And what the Bible is picturing to us right here, and it will continue to picture to us throughout Scripture, is that the way to greatness in God's kingdom is not through self-exaltation. It's not through self-preservation. It's through exalting God and serving other people. You want to be great? Serve other people and worship God. That's the picture of Scripture. You want to be great? It's called being a faithful servant. Faithful to God and serving people so that hopefully one day when you stand before Christ, you'll hear what? Well done, good, and faithful servant. In fact, I thought about this as David comes to be king, he establishes the capital, the city. If he'd been a modern day leader, do you know what he'd done at this point? He'd have written a book. Because that's what people do once you've accomplished something great. You know, you write a book about how great your accomplishment is and all you did to accomplish it and hopefully you make some money off the deal. And so David, could David have written a book 15 years? Oh, man, I got the title for him, From Trial to Triumph, How I Achieved Greatness for the Glory of God by David, son of Jesse. Oh, and I'm telling you, he'd plastered it on Instagram and Twitter or X, whatever they're calling it today, and he'd have made a lot of money. You know what's interesting? David, I thought about this. He did write a book, didn't he? He wrote the biggest book in our Bible. But it wasn't about his greatness. It's a book of what? Hymns. Songs. It was a book worshiping God. Folks, listen to me. That's greatness. 
In fact, David will get to the end of his life. 2 Samuel, I believe it's 23. We'll get there in five years or so. But when we get there, 2 Samuel 23, he gathers his family around. You know what he says to him? It's his swan song. You know what he says? He looks at all, he gathers, get all, get all the boys in. Get all the grandkids, the great-grandkids, get them all in. He says, David, you know what I am? I'm just the son of Jesse. But then you know what he says? I'm the sweet psalmist of Israel. You know what David wanted most people to know about him? Don't think about my kingship. Don't think about my victories in battle. Don't think about those things. You know what I want you to know most about me as he gathers his kids in? Just remember me as a person who worshiped Christ. Wouldn't that be good if our children just said that about us? Let me tell you about my mom and my dad. This is what they want you to know most about them. They just worship Jesus. This is greatness in God's eyes. Well, we look on very briefly here. Then in verse 11, then Hiram, king of Tyre, sent messengers to David with cedar trees and carpenters and stonemasons, and they built a house for David. God is going to use, this, this world leader, God is going to use him to bless God's people and to bless God's man. Does God still do that today? Orchestrate events and maneuver worldly leaders to help accomplish the church's goals. It happens all the time. God is in control here. He's maneuvering circumstances, even the world. Then verse 12, um, David realized that the Lord established him as king over Israel and that he exalted his kingdom for the sake of his people. David, I love this about him. He realized I didn't get here because I'm great. God has exalted me. I'm here for one reason, because God's great, not because David's good. And he realized that he was in this role not for his own benefit, but for the sake of the people. That's a good leader, that when God puts you in a position, you know, I thought about this week, the Bible very rarely says lead. But over and over again, you know what it says? Serve. Because I think in God's mind, leadership is service. David, you're here for one reason, that's to serve these people. You're not here for your blessing. You're here to bless them. And you get to this point and you start to think, man, I don't know how David could get much better. I mean, I read this passage. You, you, you read this passage in a vacuum. You say, boy, this guy's about perfect. I, he exemplifies Christ in almost every way. Man, this guy, if, you're, if you don't know the New Testament, you might start thinking maybe this guy is Messiah. Because all the Old Testament, they're looking for who? They're looking for Messiah. Maybe this guy is it. Well, read the next verse. Verse 13. Meanwhile, David took more concubines and wives from Jerusalem after he came from Hebron, and more sons and daughters were born to David. Now, these are the names of those who were born to him in Jerusalem, and I'm not going to tempt those names. It's such a letdown. You think, boy, this guy's so good. This was, uh, this was disobedience. God told him, you want to go look it up, Deuteronomy 17. God told the king, don't take a bunch of wives. Samuel warned the people. What did he warn them? When you get a king, guess what he's going to do? He's going to take, 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 take. And you get to this verse and it says, David took. And it's a reminder that you and I aren't to, aren't to get too enamored with this guy. 
don't, don't, don't put him on too high a pedestal. Because just like us, he's a sinner. He's not the Savior. There's only one hero in the Bible, and his name is Jesus. Now, what's interesting here, God will bless David while he gives him sons, which is a blessing. Well, let me ask you this. Does God sometimes bless us even though our lives are a mess? Praise God. But does sin always have consequences? You bet it does. Are there going to be consequences for David's sin? You bet there is. It's going to cause all kinds of problems. In fact, he's going to have a son, Solomon, who uh, going to watch daddy. And when he becomes king, he's going to decide, well, daddy's pretty good at this. I think I'll take 700 wives. And it'll be to his demise. Now, you can't blame, Solomon can't blame his daddy, but make no mistake about it, the seeds of that sin are planted right here, and they will come to root later on. Sin always has consequences, but God is gracious. And God is gonna still use this man to accomplish great purposes. But this is the reminder for you and I today. All of us, if you have somebody, if you have somebody in your life right now that you really love, if you have somebody in your life right now, you love them, you love being around them, you love hanging out with them, when you think of them, you got joy in your heart, I can guarantee you it's because in so many ways they look like Jesus. I, I can tell you right now, you wanna be a person who's liked, you want people to like you, you want people to like being around you, just imitate Jesus. People tend to like humble people, don't they? They, they tend to like people who serve others. They, they, they tend to like people who bless other people. They, they tend to like people who are forgiving. They, they tend to like people who are gracious. If you love, say, if you got somebody you really love, I can almost guarantee you it's because in so many ways they exemplify Christ. But what do we also know? Those people that we love and admire and we want to be around, we think about with joy. We also know this, sooner or later at some point in time, they'll let us down. Why? Because as great as they might be, they're sinners. You know what I found? Most people look pretty good from a distance. But you get to know them close and you see the warts. That's why I've always thought that true success is when the people who know you the most love you the best. But let me tell you something. There's one person, there's one person, no matter how closely you look at him, no matter how much you examine his life, you only see perfect perfection, holiness, and divine nature. And his name is Jesus. He's the hero of scripture. All these other men, they let us down. Peter, Paul, all of them, they'll let you down. There's only one hero. There's only one who's divine. There's only one who is God. There was only one who was tempted in every way just as we are yet. Yet never sinned. Always said no to sin and yes to God and his name is Jesus. And he's the only one who qualified to die for your sins. And if you're trusting and hoping in anyone or anything other than Jesus, it will let you down. And that's why David, as great as he was, when it came to his eternal salvation, was trusting in Christ. Do you know how we know he's perfect? He rose from the dead.
I, 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 when it comes to trusting somebody, I think, I, I think I'm going to trust the guy who defeated the grave. I think I'll trust that guy. That's Jesus. You don't know him? Trust him today. Father, we thank you for your word. Every page of your word points us to Jesus. David, a great king, a shepherd, but he's not the good shepherd. It was Jesus who would say in John 10, I am the good shepherd. David, he was a great servant, but he wasn't a perfect servant. But there is one who is a good shepherd. There is one who is perfectly obedient. There is one who served to the fullest extent. He served and he obeyed to the point of death, even death on a cross. He defeated the grave and God has highly exalted him, given him the name above every name that at the name of Jesus, every knee shall bow and every tongue will confess. Lord, I pray for the person this morning that doesn't know you. Maybe they're watching online. I, I don't know where they're at this morning. You know them. Lord, I pray that they would hear your invitation today. You say to them, come to me, all you who are weary and heavy laden. Maybe they've been trying to earn their salvation. Maybe they've been following the path of this world and they are worn out with their sin. They are tired of their brokenness. I pray that they would hear Jesus say, come to me. I pray this morning as Jesus in Revelation is pictured as knocking at the door, I pray that this morning they would hear you knocking at the door of their heart. And Lord, I pray that they would be so overwhelmed by your love and your grace and your mercy that they couldn't help but run to you. I pray that just as Israel learned, David was no ordinary king. And the fear of maybe submitting to his reign brought to mind hard work, labor. I don't know. Maybe there's some people here today think, well, if I give my life to Christ, it's going to be hard. I pray that they would know that you are a wonderful king and you came to give them life and life more abundant. Lord, for those of us that do know you, I, I pray that we would exemplify Christ in all that we do. I pray that we would be humble. I pray, Lord, that Every day we preach the, the message of the gospel to ourselves, being reminded that we're nothing but sinners saved by grace. And I pray that the, our life's ambition would be to imitate Christ. I pray our life's ambition would be to be faithful servants, faithful to you, worshipers who redirect that natural instinct to love ourselves. We redirect it outwardly so that the mark of our lives is serving other people. Help us, Lord. We need your help. We're so selfish. Help us, Lord, to exemplify Christ that the world might see Christ in us. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.